Guess what we're talking about tonight? <laughs> talking about Jesus tonight. Um, I want to ask you a question. We've been talking about equip now all month. Do you think you know what equip is? What, what we're trying to do here? Okay, here's what I want you to remember. This is what equip is not. Equip is not a program, right? We've, we've said that every week, that equip is not. Um, our goal with equip is not to have a single monolithic discipleship program. Um, that's, that's not what we're after. What we are looking for is a strategy where we can help people to become mature believers of Christ. And that gonna, that's going to take place in a variety of things. It's going to take place in classes like we're having right now where we're, we're going over what we believe, the fundamentals of what we believe. is going to take place Sunday morning in teaching. It's going to take place in men and women's groups and small groups. It's going to take place in one-on-one -on -one mentoring. And what we are starting on Wednesdays is, is, as I just mentioned, what we believe. And that's what Equip is all about, this strategy, this collection of things that helps us to become mature believers. Here's a quote I want you to hear. Average leaders think in terms of program, programs. Great leaders think in terms of values. Programs are short-lived. Values go beyond programs. That's what Equip is all about. It's more than just some programs. We believe, here's the value. That, that quote that you see back to me talking about values, here's, here's our purpose. Here's the value that we're talking about. We are called to help all people become mature followers of Christ. That's why we're here tonight. Um, as we get started, ushers, could you bring the sign-in sheets down? Some of them are laughing at me because I've forgotten to do this for the past two weeks when I've come up. <laughs> Thank you. Go ahead and pass those out. We'd like you to sign those um, if you could. Tonight, we are continuing what we believe and we have um, a different teacher. Uh, Pastor Mark has taught the last two weeks. We have a different teacher this week. This is a person who I am blessed to have made an acquaintance of this year, and I've become a friend. I'm getting to know him. I minister with him, and I got to tell you, he blesses my heart, and I am really looking forward tonight to have Ryan Mobley come. His topic tonight is, from, from what we believe, his topic is the deity of Christ. Let's welcome Ryan. Thanks, buddy. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be here. It's going to be great to open up God's Word tonight. Uh, so speaking of that, if you have a Bible, uh, please go ahead and open that to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible and you have a phone or something, um, open that up to Hebrews chapter 1. Um, if you don't have either of those, bring one next week. Okay, It's really important to have God's Word accessible to you in some way. As you're turning there, um, you know, I was talking with, with Dan, and uh, he was asking me kind of what, you know, hey, what weeks would you like to maybe teach on this? And got a couple options for you. You could teach on Jesus, or you could teach on sin. I said, I'll pick Jesus over sin any day of the week and twice on Sunday. So I get to, I get to talk to, to you all about Jesus tonight. So I want to start us off. And reading um, a few verses out of the, the, the book of Hebrews chapter 1, just to get us kicked off, okay? Um, this isn't on the slides or anything, so if you guys are looking, where is it? We just, just want to read this. Let's stand up together, and let's read God's Word, a classic passage on who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 1. 
verse 1, says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. Amen? Amen. Amen. This is the Jesus we are going to be talking about tonight. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father God, we are so thankful to be here in your house as your church comes together. Lord, I pray that you open up our hearts, that you open up our minds as we go through your word and we talk about Jesus who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. Lord, that it would not just give us knowledge that we need, but it would also uh, motivate us to live like Jesus did, honoring, glorifying you, fully empowered by your Spirit, making a difference, living a full life of love in a world that desperately needs it. Lord, that's our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, grab a seat. Um, Here's kind of what we're going to do, just so you know. I mean, this is a lot of stuff to go over. There's a lot of content, a lot of Scripture we can look at. We are not going to look at every single Scripture listed on your sheet, or we will be here until next Tuesday. All right, um, which wouldn't be a totally bad thing, but we're not going to do that tonight. So we're going to look at some key verses, some key scriptures as we go through our outline tonight. And what I really encourage you all to do is um, is really bring your note sheet home. I was told that uh, the notes tonight are actually on the Bible app um, when, you, when you get to the Calvary Church thing that way. Um, so you can do some study on your own. Okay. Um, this is be a really good opportunity to use this for some devotional time or study time through your week and really drilling these truths down. So, um, here's what I want to say about as we start off talking about Jesus. Jesus Christ, belief in who he is, is what defines and divides all people. Okay? The person of Jesus Christ defines and divides all people. People have all kinds of different opinions on who Jesus is, on what Jesus did. And and that's really what what separates everybody. Some people think Jesus, in a religious sense, was just a prophet. I mean, that's what Islam would say. He was was just a prophet. Some believe that Jesus was a created being that lived in such a way he achieved God's status. That's what Mormonism believes. Some some people just think he was just a good moral teacher. Okay? Like, Like Buddha, you know, or Confucius was just a good moral teacher. People have all kinds of different opinions on who Jesus is. 
and what Jesus has done. When you look at the words of Jesus, when you look at the life of Jesus, you know, we're not going to, we don't need to spend time of, is the Bible really true and what it says? We went over that a couple weeks ago with Pastor Mark, who did a great job. We're confident that God's word is true. We are confident of that. So we don't need to argue that. But when we look at that, we really find ourselves in this situation having to decide um, really this idea that C.S. Lewis wrote about back in the mid-20th century. He says, when you look at Jesus, listen, there's only three options. He either lied about everything, right, or he was a crazy man, you know, he's a lunatic, or he really is Lord. That's your three options. Two of them are wrong, one of them's right. The last one's right. As we go through that tonight, we're going to see that. But here's the thing. Most errors in who Jesus is tend to do one of two things. They tend to either overhumanize Jesus, right? He was just a guy. He was just a good teacher, that sort of thing. They either they tend to overhumanize him or they tend to overdeify him, ignoring his humanity. Both are errors because what we're going to see tonight is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And why that's so important and the implications of that. Okay? So, let's jump in. Let's jump into the person of Christ. The person of Christ. So what we see is this, is that Jesus is fully man. That's where we're going to start off. Why are we going to start there? Because this point throughout history really hasn't been debated all too much. Okay? Most people agree that Jesus was a real guy that existed a couple thousand years ago in ancient Israel, right? So there has been a whole lot of debate on Jesus being fully man. But here is what the Bible tells us about him being fully man and why it's important is what we're going to get to, okay? We know that Jesus was born. This is one way we know he's fully man. Matthew 1.18 says about the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born like every other person, okay? In a human sense, everyone was born. So Jesus was born. Jesus also grew, he grew in a number of different ways. Scriptures tell us he grew uh, in wisdom. He grew in stature. Uh, he grew in honor before men. He grew emotionally. I mean, he went through stages of growth during his earthly time here, just like we all do. Okay? He grew. Jesus felt things. He felt things on a number of different levels. Jesus felt hunger. He wanted to eat. You know, I think to his, you know, his temptation in the desert before he started his ministry, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. The man was hungry at the end of that. He felt pain, physical pain, when he was getting beaten. You know, when he was being crucified on the cross, there was anguish and pain that he felt. Jesus got tired. I mean, he, he worked hard loving and ministering to people, teaching people, and he got tired. I mean, you think about that story. I, do all, I always thought this was very curious until I began ministering and teaching and doing that sort of thing a lot. You know, I always, I always think about, you know, when, when Jesus fell asleep in the boat in the middle of the storm, 
You know, and the disciples are freaking out because of the storm around them. And Jesus sacked out, you know, in the front of the boat. I mean, the, the, he was tired because of the energy that he put out in serving and loving people every day. He got tired just like you and I got tired. He grew frustrated. You read some of these interactions with his, with his disciples, he got frustrated with those guys. A bunch of knuckleheads he picked to hang around with them for a few years, right? He's like, how long do I have to put up with you guys? I mean, we see these times. It wasn't a point of sin, okay? Uh, we feel all sorts of things. What makes things sin and what we feel is how we choose to act on it, right? Um, what, 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 we, what that takes us to. But he got frustrated. He got sad when his friend Lazarus died. This is one example. He was so sad, he wept. Um, Jesus got angry. He did. He got angry. You know what? Um, that story, it's really interesting. You, when, you, when you read the story of Lazarus dying, you know, and it talks about Jesus weeping, it, it, there's a phrase used a couple times in that passage that says he was troubled in his spirit. That's a gentle interpretation of that passage. When you interpret that passage pretty literally, it says he was mad. He was angry. He was angry because he was seeing something happen in front of him with someone that he loved and cared about that was never God's design to happen. He saw the result of sin. And it made him mad. There are, there are right things to be angry at. Sin is one of them. The results of sin is one of them. So I say all this, Jesus felt things physically, emotionally, like we all do. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus breathed his last, it says in Mark 15. Jesus died. And here's a really key verse that kind of sums this all up. It's in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus fully identified with humanity. This is what Hebrews 2.17 says. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to satisfy God's wrath for the sins of the people. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That is a weighty phrase. There's a lot packed into that. But why was he made that way? So he could be this merciful and faithful high priest. Listen, no matter what you go through, no matter how hard your life feels, no matter what situation you are faced with, Jesus understands. He understands. He was made like us in every respect. So he could be that good and merciful and loving and compassionate faithful high priest to walk with you through that time and see you through it. He got through it through the help of his Father empowered by the Holy Spirit saying this is how you can do it. I've done it. I'm going to do it with you. This is why 
the humanity of Christ is so important. Jesus was fully man. Jesus had to be fully human so he could live in our place. He lived a sinless life fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that? Jesus lived his life fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. He had to be fully human so he can live in our place that way and die in our place as the sinless sacrifice. This is why Jesus' humanity is so important. For him to live in our place and to die in our place. We cannot neglect his life for the sake of his death and resurrection. Right? We, we can't do that. It's his life that also gives us hope. It's his life that also gives us example. You know, I, I was talking to someone a number of years ago, and uh, we were, I think we were, we were planning an Easter service or something like that, and this person in this group said, man, I'm a, you know, I'm a Sunday morning Christian. I, you know, I love the resurrection and, you know, and, and worshiping Jesus and glorifying him for that. And I'm like, yes, but you know what? we got to go through Friday before we get to Sunday. And you know what? Before we get to Friday, we got to look back at those three years of, him, of his ministry too, right? So, one last uh, point I want to talk on as we finish up this section on Jesus being fully man. I want, to, I want to touch real quickly on this idea of the incarnation. The incarnation. How many of you have heard that term incarnation before? Okay. Incarnation uh, literally means took on flesh. That's what incarnation means. Took on flesh. Comes from John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, In the Word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? That's where that's where that comes from. The term took on flesh, and here's, here's something. You know, I'm, I'm a word guy, okay? I'm a little bit of a word nerd when it comes to Bible stuff. Uh, here's what I'm going to tell you. Using the term took on flesh regarding Jesus is much more biblically accurate than saying God became a man, okay? Because one, that's what the Bible says, okay? Um, incarnation, took on flesh, um, is more accurate than saying God became a man because of this. Jesus never ceased being God when he took on flesh. Do, do you see how, the, how, that, how that phrasing is important, actually? Than saying became a man, took on flesh is much more accurate. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, teaches us this whole idea that Jesus willingly set aside some of his godly attributes during his earthly ministry. That's what Philippians 2 says. Um, I'll highlight one verse in verse 7. It says this, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay, this whole, that whole idea of being of emptying himself. It wasn't a full emptying, but it was a time where he, he willingly set aside, somehow in the mystery of God, set aside some of his godly attributes during his earthly ministry. Okay? So this whole idea, God became, you know, he took on flesh, he came to earth, he dwelt among us, uh, is where we see this whole idea, the incarnation of, of Jesus being fully man. All right? So, Jesus, on one sense, in one hand, 
is fully man. And on the other hand, Jesus is fully God. Right. Jesus is fully God. Now, this has often been debated. Even debated in the church. I mean, some people, they, because listen, we're, we're finite humans. We can't wrap our minds around some of these things, right? Um, it wasn't until the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD where all these church leaders came together and made a definitive statement on Jesus being fully man and fully God, okay? Um, so just so you understand, this is trying to understand and come to grips with this is not a new idea. You're in great company throughout the last couple thousand years, okay? Um, but we have clearly seen um, through Scripture that Jesus is fully man, and now we're going to clearly see that Jesus is fully God. So we're going to hit a couple quick points. First one is this whole idea of the Trinity. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because this was covered um, the other week, but there's one verse in particular that I want to show you. Because I think it's beautiful. I mean, it really is. Um, it's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And I think we have that one. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name, you ready? His name shall be called, let's read this together, Wonderful Counselor. Let's stop. Who does Jesus say the Counselor is? The Holy Spirit. Mighty God. What's the next of the third one? Everlasting Father. Father God, first person of the Trinity. And the last title is? Prince of Peace. Son of God. This is a verse we use at Christmas time all the time, right? But I remember, I, you know, I was reading this verse. Man, it was probably only five or six years ago, to tell you the truth. And I'm reading, and it just struck me how this verse in the Old Testament is showing our Trinitarian God. And it just blew me away. It's one of those times you sit back and you push your Bible back, and you're like, oh my gosh, God, you are amazing. Just a little moment of worship. Second point of Jesus being fully God. So we talk about the Trinity. Um, we're going to just, just, just touch on that. The Father said he was God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, there's a clear point of where the Father's saying uh, he's a son. So the Father said he was God. Jesus said he was God. Right? I mean, this is where you go back to the C.S. Lewis quote. You know, was he lying or was he telling the truth? Was he crazy? I mean, people in our day, they say they're God. We think they're nuts. Right? Because they are, because God already came here. Jesus, right? So the Father said he was God. Jesus said he was God. Let me, let's, let's read in uh, Matthew 26. I'll read this to you. Matthew 26. I'm going to start at verse 63. It says, uh, and this is when Jesus was before the high priest, right? Uh, during one of his trials. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So the high priest Caiaphas is laying it right before Jesus. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
That's a big definitive statement right there. What did the high priest do next? Look in verse 65. It says, Then the high priest tore his robes. That is a massive symbol of what just happened. And it goes on to explain it. The high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Blasphemy is saying that you're God. Equating yourself with God. And then verse 66, he says, what's your judgment? The high priest says to the other council members there, and they answered, he deserves death. This is something we need to understand. Jesus was put to death for blasphemy. In the priest's eyes, that's what he was being put to death for. That was the, you know, I mean, they were trying to scheme against him for years, right? When that happened, that was the, you know, proverbial nail in the coffin, so to speak. So, but, we're, but the point that we're seeing here is that Jesus himself said he was God, and he said it in a number of other places. Fourth point with this, Jesus received worship as God. He received worship as God. When Jesus walked on water, and the disciples said at the end of that story, you know, um, surely this is the Son of God. You know, when Jesus asked, who do you say I am, Peter? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whenever that happened, whether it was his disciples or someone else, and, he, and they worshipped him in that way, Jesus never rejected it because what they were doing was true and right. So Jesus received worship as God. As we just said, Jesus' disciples said he was God. Like I just mentioned from Peter's confession in Matthew 16. And then the Bible clearly states Jesus is God. In a number of passages by a number of writers, not just Paul, but, a no, but all of the New Testament writers, in one way, shape, or form, affirm Jesus' deity. We just read a passage from Hebrews. A very high and lofty passage proclaiming the deity of, of Christ. The book of Colossians is, has a very high Christology, it's called. A very high Christology. Study of Christ, person of Christ, who Jesus is. And there's a big section right in the middle of the first chapter talking about the preeminence of Jesus. We have a couple verses I want to share from Colossians. Uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 19 says, For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul wrote that in the first chapter, and as he pens his letter, he gets to chapter 2 in verse 9. He wasn't writing verses, but he gets to chapter 2, and he says it again. Hey, in case you missed it the first time, a couple paragraphs ago, I'm going to say it again. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I mean, Paul is just driving it home. He's like, listen, church, this Jesus that we teach about and talk about, Jesus is God. We need to be very careful and clear in our culture because that term God means a thousand different things to a thousand different people. So my encouragement to you, when you talk about the Lord, you know, with people in your family or people that you know, you clearly need to say the name of Jesus so they know who you're talking about. Not this generic God thing that everybody uses one way, shape, or form. 
but we need to talk about Jesus. Amen? So, um, so we see in this first person of Christ that Jesus is fully man and Jesus is fully God. Let's look at some other things here. Let's talk about the offices of Christ. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you. And I thought Pastor Mark did a great job with this when he was talking about the, uh, God the Father um, last week. The names of God mean something to us. Same thing with the names of Jesus, the titles of Jesus. They communicate something to us. So every title that he has, every role that he has that we're going to look at means something very personal to us that we can take away from this. Okay? I really want you guys to understand that this is just not what we're learning, but this is what we're believing so we can live it. All right? So um, let, let's just kind of run through a couple of these. Um, I can't, I'm not going to hit all the titles. The video did that really great. Right? Um, but we're going to hit four main titles. The first one is his name. is Jesus. Okay? Jesus means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the formal name of God in the Old Testament. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Matthew 121. Um, I love this verse so much. Um, so I'm going to read it to you. Um, this is actually, in my a little tradition, just so you get to know me a little bit, a tradition we have in my home um, at Christmas time is when we put our Christmas tree up, the very first ornament that we hang on our tree um, is a nail. And um, it's, we hang it close to the inside of the tree by the trunk, okay? And so in our family, we all, you know, we're getting everything ready. We get the tree up. The first thing that goes on in the nail, and we read this verse right here, Matthew 1.21, says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And we do that. We read this verse. We hang that ornament, that nail ornament, so we remember that, you know what? Jesus was born to die because we needed a Savior. That was, there was a forward looking with that. So Jesus means Yahweh saves. Christ is not a last name, okay, that's not his last name, it's a title. Christ means anointed one, it means anointed one. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, the Greek equivalent for Messiah, actually, as well. Um, so uh, Christ, we also see that in the uh, prophecy about Jesus being born. Uh, so Jesus, in Matthew chapter 1, he was going to be the one that, to be called Christ. Now here's one I want to I look at. And if you have a Bible... Or, go ahead and flip to Psalm 110 real quick. Psalm 110. Because I want to talk about Lord. Okay? Um, we're going to look at Psalm 110. For you guys sitting over here, sorry, I'll see if I can turn a little bit. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is a very important Old Testament verse concerning Jesus. Three of the Gospels quote this verse. It's actually Jesus quoting the verse. And then the disciples quote it again in the book of Acts in a sermon about Jesus. But it, it shows us really something about the term Lord, especially meaning this whole idea that, yeah, it means ruler or king. Okay? Um, so Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, so... The, the first instance of Lord in your Bibles. Can someone tell me what's unique about how it's written in your Bible? 
look, at, look at the word, look at the letters. How is it written? You see capitals, that's right, very good. So you got a capital L, you got a small capital O, small capital R, small capital D. Whenever the Bible writes Lord this way, it's meaning Yahweh, the formal name of God. Follow me? Second instance in your Bible in that verse with Lord, how's it written? Is it, cap is it all caps? No. It is capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. When you see it in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament this way, it is the title of God, Adonai. Why is this important? One, this is another example. This verse is another example of Jesus being God. Jesus confounded the, the priests and the Pharisees with this verse. He's like, how, you know, how is David talking to God? This can't be about David. You can't have Yahweh and Adonai talking to each other in the same verse and David be thrown in there. This is God talking to himself. This is God the Father talking to God the Son is what we're seeing here. Okay? You follow me? Kind of really important. So, when we get to the Greek, when we get to the Greek in the New Testament, we see another word being used for Lord in the Greek, and this word is the word kurios. Okay? Now, when in the, new, in the Greek, kurios has three meanings to it. First is a formal relational meaning, like using the word sir to somebody. That's one aspect of kurios. The second aspect of kurios is, um, means like master, like a master and slave, like a boss and a worker. Okay, that little bit higher sign of respect because there's authority involved, right? We see Jesus being called master a lot. His disciples calling him master. The third aspect of kurios means sovereign, like a king over a kingdom, now that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Those are those three aspects of Kyrios. Why am I going through this? Here's why. Now, let's think about the word church. In the Greek, in the New Testament, the Greek word ekklesia is what we translate church. But the word ekklesia literally means assembly, people coming together. The root word for our English word church comes from a Greek word called kuriake. Now, I think you can see how these two words are related. Kuriake means literally those who belong to the Lord. That's what the root of the word church means. Pretty cool. Here's, here's why this is important. Remember how I said the titles of Christ tell us something about ourselves? Jesus means Yahweh saves. Christ means anointed one. Lord means ruler, king. Because you know what? We need a savior. We need to be saved. Yahweh saves. Jesus it says, you know what? We also need a really good ruler. We need a godly ruler. We'll all follow somebody or something. Jesus has come as our perfect godly ruler, as our Lord. 
Jesus Christ, Lord. There's one more title I want to point out just because it was Jesus' favorite. Okay? The last one, the fourth point of his names and titles is Son of Man, which is a direct reference to the Messiah. Direct reference to the Messiah. This was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Eighty-four times Son of Man is used in the New Testament. Eighty-one of those times is a direct reference to Jesus, and practically all those is Jesus talking about himself. Jesus loved this phrase, Son of Man. John 3, verses 13 through 15, says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Right? Jesus, Jesus wasn't, wasn't this good guy that became a God. No, he was a God that came down to us. The Son of Man. Now, and here is Jesus prophesying, pulling from the Old Testament about what he's going to do to save us. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen? Awesome. So those are, really, those are four really important um, names and titles of Christ. Let's fly through some of these other things. Um, let's talk about roles really quick. Prophet. Jesus has four main roles we're going to look at. The first one is prophet. Prophet is one who speaks for God. John 14, 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus only spoke the words the Father told him to speak. He was perfectly obedient that way. He was a prophet who spoke to God. Secondly, he was a priest. He was one consecrated to represent people to God. We have a great uh, section of verses in Hebrews. It says in Hebrews chapter 8, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Then verse 6 says in chapter 8, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. He's talking about the difference between law and grace. And then verse, chapter 4, verse 14, says it very clearly. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus is representing you to the Father. He holds that priestly role. Prophet, priest, and now king. We just talked about um, this with Lord. King is one who is Lord, Master, and Conqueror. We don't talk about Conqueror too much when we talk about Lord, do we? But it's really important, and here's why. We all, heard, we all know the term gospel, right? What does gospel mean? Good news. Gospel means good news. Gospel, you know, when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, 
Jesus wasn't the only one to use the term gospel. His followers, his disciples, the writers of the scriptures weren't the only ones to use the gospel. Um, people would be very familiar with this phrase of saying the gospel of Caesar. The good news of Caesar. You know why? Here's why. The times the gospel is commonly used is when a king just won a battle. And there would be someone running back to the city from the battlefield proclaiming the good news that our army was victorious. Our king won the battle. So when we talk about Jesus as king, yes, we are talking about him as Lord. We are talking about him as master. And we are talking about him as conqueror, as the one who defeated Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. Amen? Revelation chapter 11 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And in Revelation 19, 16, it has this great picture when Jesus is coming back down from heaven on that white horse, written on his thigh, it says, on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written. Everyone say it. King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is king. And the last role that Jesus has that we were going to look at is he is the chief shepherd. He's the head of the church. Pastor Mark is our senior pastor, but Jesus is our chief shepherd. And ultimately, it's what Jesus says is what we do. And we trust our pastors to listen to the chief shepherd as this church moves forward in ministry. 1 Peter 5, 4 says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Ephesians 4, 15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And then Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, Jesus says. I will build my church. It's his church, ultimately. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Powerful things. The roles that Jesus has have deep meaning in our lives. And here's the neat thing, too. We all share aspects of these roles. The way God has gifted and equipped us, some of us are more prophets than others. Some of us, you know, have, have gifts of preaching and teaching. Some are more priestly and really care for people and, and visit and pray and have that sort of role, pastoral role in their life. Some are more kingly with very high administrative gifts, making sure that the church is running in a good and efficient and godly way, being good stewards of our things. And then we have some who reflect the chief shepherd in overseeing the church, like our elders, making sure we're, we're staying on track theologically and where we're going. You see, Jesus shares all things with us. Because while he's the head, we're the, we're the body. See how this works together? It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that's going on. Last, last point we're going to hit. We've talked about the person of Christ being fully man, being fully God. 
We've talked about the, the titles and the roles of Christ. And the last thing we're going to look at is the work of Christ. The work of Christ. First point is this, is that his, about his life. We, we, we talked about this briefly. His life is our example of a perfect, loving, full life. You want to know how to live? You look at how Jesus lived. How should I relate to people? How did Jesus relate to people? What should I say? What did Jesus say? He's our example. Jesus manifested the literal word of God. He manifested. He showed us what it looks like. He showed us what a life looks like fully in line with the heart of God. John chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus says, this is his high priestly prayer. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus says, I have manifested you, Father. Everything you wanted me to say, I said. Everything you wanted me to do, I did. I live fully, fully dependent on the Spirit that you gave me through the Holy Spirit. He is our example in all things. The second part of the work of Christ, so we have his life. The second one is his death. His death is our payment for sin that secures our salvation. We needed that sinless sacrifice so it would satisfy all of what God demanded. Jesus fulfilled that. His death was our payment for sin that secured our salvation. Third, his resurrection. His resurrection. His resurrection is our guarantee of our victory over death and justifies us before the Father. We have clean legal standing before the Lord. We are justified through Jesus' resurrection. Our guarantee over sin, Satan, hell, and death is guaranteed because of Jesus' resurrection. Now here's the thing. You cannot separate this resurrection from his death. If Jesus just died on the cross and didn't raise, that didn't show that he didn't have any power over death. But on the third day, he rose, showing that he has ultimate power over death, that final enemy. To where Paul writes in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? You don't have it because Jesus took it. Okay? You can't separate his death and resurrection. And the fourth one is his advocacy. His advocacy. He is our one and only mediator to the Father. We just talked about this. We were talking about his role as priest, right? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you two verses because they're really, this is really important because, listen, um, I know in this church there's a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds um, that are finding a full life in Christ here. You know, praise the Lord. And as we um, minister in this community, as we talk to people, um, this is a key thing because there are people who follow some other um, different uh, religious, you know, Christian religion, they have a different view on this, and we need to be very clear on what the Bible says. Hebrews 12, 24 says this, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We want to focus on that phrase, the mediator of a new covenant. He gave us a new covenant, this covenant of grace that his blood ushered in. 
It's not a blood that screams condemnation like Abel's was back in Genesis, but his blood speaks a better word over us. It's speaking a better word over you. Listen, Jesus comes and saves us. And before and, and because of his death and re- resurrection and our, and our belief in him and our trust in him, we are cleansed of our sin. It has no hold on us anymore, right? But we're still living in a fallen world, some fallen bodies and some broken ways of thinking, and we still sin every day, don't we? We say things we shouldn't. You know, we, we do things we shouldn't. We, we don't live for the Lord like we should. And God sees that, right? Because God sees and knows everything. And God, by his nature, needs to act on that. But we have Jesus' blood that covers us, that speaks a better word to the Father. Jesus' blood says, no, Father, I, I cover them. Their penalty for sin is paid for. That's the better word. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save the, to the uttermost. Oh my gosh. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives and makes intercession for them. Here's what I'm talking about. We don't need saints or ancestors to pray to, to pray to God. That is not right. That's not what the Word teaches. Jesus does that for us. Jesus is our intercessor. He is the one that goes to the Father on our behalf. We don't have to pr- you can pray directly to Jesus. And Jesus God, you're praying right to God. You don't have to pray to Saint whoever. You don't have to pray to ancestor whoever. You pray to Jesus, okay? It's a huge thing. So, let me wrap this up. I'm almost right on time. Um, Jesus is known in part. Jesus is known by what he said and what he did. His works, all right? What What we have here. And the significance of what he said and did is conditioned by who he is, right? So what he said, what he did, is greatly conditioned, greatly informed by who he is as God. You can't separate the person and the work of Christ. We can look at them individually, but we cannot separate them. That's what I hope you see, how they work together tonight, and what it means for us. Okay? So who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, makes a difference, not just in what we believe and where we're going, but what we do when we step out of these doors tonight. We have a prophet, priest, king, chief shepherd. We have a lord. We have a king. We have a savior. That's our Jesus. And here's how I'm going to end. I love this old hymn. The, The chorus of this hymn says, living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. And one day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Oh, glorious day. Thank you so much. I hope this was beneficial to you. God bless you guys.